Hello everyone, it's Yolanda here. Yeah, I'm back after a very long absence. There have been so many changes in my life since I shared the story of Xanthi's birth in the last episode that it's hard to know where to begin. <laughs> We've almost come full circle, I guess, because I think the last podcast episode I released was last summer? Last spring? Yeah, so... It's April now, and uh, while I'm hoping we're on the cusp of emerging from what has been, to my mind, a pretty ferocious winter, it is still very, very chilly outside here in New Brunswick, with snow still on the ground. So yeah, we are eagerly awaiting the return of warmer weather very, very soon, I hope. We're getting to mid-April now, and um, so far, not too much of that, but it will happen. So for those who know and love and follow me, uh, let me try to quickly recap the past year. It's been a, it's been a big one. Um, so my dad died last March and my family and I moved and we moved again and we've established ourselves now in a new home in Fredericton and adopted a new routine. Our three oldest kids are very happy at school Cosmo is three years old. He'll be four in June, and I don't have a baby anymore. Xanthi is over 18 months old now, and uh, she is the happiest, sweetest, loveliest little toddler ever, and we all adore her. And as for me, I have really been focusing on taking care of my body and my soul, I suppose. I became slightly obsessed with tennis of all things over the winter and I took a lot of time away from birth work in every form just to I guess create space in my life for other work and to focus on Pilates and yoga and bar and movement every day which frankly has been kind of I guess the key to my psychological survival over these past several months. I've been uh, maintaining this new routine that this is going to maybe sound crazy, but anyway, it involves going to sleep at around 8 o'clock most nights, and I wake up at 4 in the morning, <laughs> for real, and uh, and I love it, because it means I get the time I need for myself, and a couple of hours for exercise, and a couple of hours for writing, before anyone else is awake, and this has gone a long way to helping me heal, I guess, and, and to stay sane, <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> Um, and to those ends as well, I've spent a long time, I guess, just pondering what I want and how I need my life to look and function and how I can continue to serve and do activist work while all the other stuff is going on. So I'm working pretty much full time and I'm writing a lot. And of course, pottery is still something that's happening. Lee and I are building a new studio in Fredericton this summer. So that's pretty great. Um, but yeah, despite all of the everything that's happening, I'm also really getting serious with uh, serious about the necessity of simplifying my existence, um, you know, simplifying the things that I am able to simplify anyway, so that I can, I guess, be more effective and grounded and engaged and just being able to clear the path to do the work that I feel I have to do in this crazy world. So 
it has been kind of a strange um, yet powerful time in my life. And this whole flurry of growth has definitely been catalyzed, I guess, by the death of my father, which brought up a lot of stuff for me and forced me into several crossroads, really, that necessitated not to be overly theatrical, but kind of a choice between darkness and light. So it's a uh, it's been a journey, as they say. <laughs> but I've achieved a lot in the past few months, especially, that I really feel great about. And I can honestly say that I'm at peace now with my dad's passing and his passage. And that was not the case when he first died. I was really a mess, actually. It was very, very hard for me. Um, but I feel like now what I'm carrying is just a lot of love and gratitude and appreciation for him without without needing to sugarcoat the very complicated and in many ways impossible and tragic person that he was. And uh, I think this openness to his shadow and also his glow has brought even more into focus, actually, the love and appreciation that I have for my mom, especially, and my sister, also, especially, and Lee, especially, and our kids, especially. <laughs> so, yay wonderful and you know it's just life so it's it's always up and down but uh but actually lee and i have never i don't think been in a more stable loving and and really fruitful place in our relationship and and actually yeah for anyone who's going through a tough time or struggling i i actually have some great tools to recommend to to the open-minded so shoot me an email or join my mailing list and uh, I'll tell you all about it if you're interested because I actually did have to specifically go out and seek help, quite frankly, because a year ago, like I said, I was not handling things very well. So I'm so grateful to be able to say the opposite is true now. And actually, interestingly, in the past few weeks, several friends have, I think, been going through their own emotional crises and I think it's, yeah, because I've had so much support and understanding myself that I'm able to be present for others, even in just a small capacity. So I'm immensely grateful for all the love I have. Yay. <laughs> and actually, one of the results of all this, of this year, I guess, of contemplation and sort of inner focus is that I basically had a, you know, a kind of concurrent or related sort of crisis over birth work. And, um, for a time, I unpublished my entire blog. And if you're hearing this at the right time, uh, my website has been revived, or it's on the cusp of being revived. And I'm really, really excited about starting what really feels to be a new chapter for me in birth work. So I'm no longer witnessing or having anything to do with births in person at all anymore. But I'm focusing my birth work on long distance teaching and consulting and writing. And it's been incredibly busy, especially in the past couple of months. Um, and it's really immensely gratifying to see firsthand how the social technology that can sometimes feel so alienating can also be a real source of strength and support. So I've been ecstatic actually to hear so many positive birth stories from women I worked with over Skype and who've gone on to free birth their babies. And actually, I want to read a short email that I received from an incredible mother who contacted me just a few weeks before her birth, actually. And along with her partner, 
met with me over Skype. And at the beginning of our first one hour conversation, she was quite hesitant at the prospect of free birth. But over the course of the consult and and our second conversation as well, she completely changed her outlook, I think, and was really able to move forward to plan her free birth with real confidence. And um, this is what she wrote to me a month or so after her baby was born. She said, uh, Hi Yolanda, I wanted to say thank you so much for your support during my pregnancy and birth. I can't believe how well everything ended up going. I had a very fast two and a half hour labor that, although painful, was incredibly peaceful and intimate. I labored with just Jay while our older daughter slept. Just knowing you were on the phone helped me calm down when I panicked during transition. Thank you so much. Three fetal ejection reflex pushes later and our baby was out. I'm so happy that you shared with me about tearing. According to the midwife that came the next day, my tear was second degree. I left it alone though and it healed well on its own. So completely different than the months of pain I experienced after being stitched in the hospital after our first baby. I'm so very grateful that I found your blog and the free birth sessions. It was exactly what I needed to hear at the time to really decide I was going to free birth. Thank you. This was a life-changing decision for me. Ah, So anyway, I was obviously just so touched by that message. And uh, yeah, birth and the way we birth really does change the world. So it was just so great to to receive that feedback. Um, And if you're interested in working with me remotely, you can head to www.bahousewife.com. That's B-A-U-H-A-U-S-W-I-F-E.com, where you'll find a link to the different coaching options that I offer. And I'd love to invite everyone who's on social media to join the two Facebook groups that I engage with. And those would be, first of all, the Free Birth Society group run by my dear friend and birth business partner, mm-hmm, Emily Saldaya, and my smaller and somewhat more intimate Ba Housewife Free Birth group. And that group is a new space for me, and I'll link to it in my show notes, which I'll have up on my blog as well. And I'm really excited about the community that's emerged there. It's very precious to me, actually, and I've been getting a lot of feedback from women who tell me that they find the group quite unique among birth groups on social media, and I'm really proud of that. Um, So I encourage you to join, but if, only join if, and only if you can handle the truth, and that would be my truth and the sometimes conflicting truths and opinions of the other ferocious women in the group. Um, And just, you know, as long as you're comfortable with the sharing of conflicting information and ideas about birth um, and just a kind of no holds barred approach to really digging in and dissecting and and critiquing um, images of birth and ideas around birth and no, all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, I think if you know anything about me, you know that that's kind of my whole approach to everything. I really believe in um, just uh, kind of talking everything out and being maybe not brutally honest. I know maybe I've been brutally honest in the past. And, you know, I think probably my ideas may be interpreted that way, but just open and open to open to a healthy dose of criticism. So, and of course, 
as long as you're at least tolerant of a radical feminist perspective on all this stuff. Um, so yeah, the group is really geared towards women who are comfortable questioning all of the received wisdom that we, uh, that we're bombarded with around birth. And in fact, those two Facebook groups, the Free Birth Society group and the Baja Housewife Free Birth group are pretty much the only spaces where I'll be hanging out on social media. I mean, don't hold me to that or anything, but that's my intention because I'm working really, really hard on completing what I now think will be two books. Uh, so anyway, I know this project keeps kind of growing, but um, but I'm pretty sure now that I have two books um, in the works. One will be called The Free Birth Manifesto, which I've mentioned in the past, Birth in Power. And I think the other will be called Wild Pregnancy, Ecstatic Birth, A Guide to Free Birth. So I sort of have one project that is you know, kind of a philosophical treatise on how to think about free birth. And then the other is going to be more of a guide book. So both will include lots of anecdotes and stories from my own life and stories from my, my own births and the involvement that I've had in other women's births. And, um, and actually this podcast episode and the following two podcast episodes. So this is going to be a three part series on ultrasound, uh, will be heavily borrowed from those, uh, manuscripts. So this podcast is something of a, uh, something of a sneak peek. So, uh, I'm kind of excited about that. Excited to share this material with all of you, um, as it is now. And, uh, Finally, one of the most exciting projects that I'm immersed in at the moment is a collaboration with my dear friend Emily Saldea, who I just mentioned, of the Free Birth Society podcast and the Free Birth Society group and the Free Birth Society. Uh, join the Facebook group if you can. Just go there and join. It's amazing. And I'm in there a lot and just sharing a lot of a lot of my ideas and feedback. And uh, yeah, Emily and I are launching together on July 1st, the Free Birth Society School and its first course, The Complete Guide to Free Birth, which is going to be amazing. And if you're not already familiar with Emily's work, she's a powerhouse. I could go on and on about how brilliant she is and about how much I love her, but just go and listen to her podcast you'll get the gist immediately. And she is, she's amazing and brilliant and fearless and I adore her. And she's also like a networker extraordinaire. And that's obviously not, <laughs> not my forte. So we're kind of unstoppable together. Um, I just love her. She's my soul sister. And isn't it kind of incredible when the universe sends you someone with whom you are so much in alignment? It's pretty amazing. So go to my website, bahousewife.com, go to the Free Birth Society website, join our lists, and we'll keep you updated and ready for our course to launch, which will go into pretty much everything that anyone has ever wanted to know about free birth. <laughs> Maybe that's a bold claim, but anyway, we're going to be talking about the birth process, logistics, philosophy, just the basics, and there's going to be tons of support too. And I think it's going to be really, really great. And I'm just super stoked about it. So now ultrasound, <laughs> this is a big one. 
And as I mentioned, this podcast is going to be the first installment in a three-part series on ultrasound because I have so much to say about it. And, uh, and I've been talking about it for pretty much 20 years. So, yeah. It's a long time. And uh, during much of that time, I felt like a bit of a freak, really, for critiquing a technology or a tool that is so deeply established in our collective birth psyche. And, uh, and I really want to start kind of from the beginning um, of that story, of the story of my involvement or my interest in this topic. So as I've discussed before, my mother has been a massive influence on me and really is the source in so many ways, literally and figuratively. My mom is an extremely radical, independent woman, and she's also very frank and open and honest about most things. And it's because of her openness and honesty about her experience birthing me that I am so ardent about birth. It's one of the main reasons anyway. And that's also, and that's also I think, why I've been able to make the choices that I have where I've felt able to make those choices. So I'm the oldest of three children in our family, and I remember actually when my mother was pregnant with my younger brother, who is the third child, the third and last baby, and he was born in 1989. My mother at age 39 then was hmm, considered to be of advanced age, or what are the obstetrical terms, geriatric mother, something demeaning like that. Anyway, there were only eight years between my brother and myself and my sisters in the middle. I was born in 1981. So I actually remember my mother coming home from one of her prenatal appointments because she had very normal pregnancies and she did the whole doctor and hospital birth thing, you know, to a degree anyway. And I remember her coming home and saying that she'd been offered something called an ultrasound due, of course, to her advanced age. Now, the 80s were really kind of the dawn of the prevalence and normalization of ultrasound technology. Prior to around the 80s, ultrasound didn't really exist in the consumer or standard medical or obstetric sphere. Ultrasound had, at that point, been introduced into the medical realm and been around for quite some time, but it was rare and very specialized. So my mom came home and said that her doctor had suggested that she undergo this ultrasound, you know, to see the baby and to make sure that it was okay, whatever that was supposed to mean. She'd also been offered the blood serum screening for trisomy 18, um, also known as Down syndrome, and amniocentesis, which is the procedure where they insert an enormous needle into the abdomen, into the, anyway, the, that whole thing. Because, of course, there was supposedly a higher risk of her baby having Down syndrome or other complicating conditions because she was so old. And uh, my mother, true to character, said, no way. Why would I want to see my baby? My baby's right there in my uterus. We're not meant to see the baby. And my mom knew nothing about the technology behind ultrasound, but she's always been very intuitive, very comfortable with her body, responsible for herself and her health, and just in general disinterested in diagnostics. And she just had a strong feeling that this wasn't necessary. 
Also, she'd already had two healthy babies without much medical intervention, except when it came to the actual birth processes. So the ultrasound just seemed irrelevant to her. Now, there's some important history here that I'm sure influenced her perspective. So a really significant piece of my family lore is that my grandmother, my mother's mother, had terrible morning sickness when she was pregnant with my mom in 1950. And grandma, actually, I guess she was pregnant in 1949 because my mom was born in January 1950. So anyway, 1949. And grandma was prescribed what was then thought to be a miracle drug that she was told would eliminate her morning sickness altogether. And the drug was called thalidomide. So grandma dutifully went to the pharmacy and filled her prescription and took the little bottle of pills home. But she kept having this sort of funny feeling that maybe she didn't really need to medicate herself. And, you know, maybe morning sickness was something that she could handle or, you know, tolerate for a while. Or, you know, maybe it was normal, a normal if unpleasant part of pregnancy. So she decided she wouldn't take the thalidomide just yet. So... The upshot is that little bottle of pills ended up sitting in her medicine cabinet throughout her entire pregnancy, unopened. And eventually, the morning sickness subsided, and a few months later, my own mother was born. Very healthy and without any issues. You know, no unexpected variations. And soon after that, of course, the thalidomide scandal hit the newswire. And I think most of us are all aware, or should be, of the terrible legacy of that drug. Babies born with missing limbs and worse. And I think this story had a profound effect on my whole family. In fact, a multi-generational effect that I think has really contributed to my and my mother's tendency to consistently and deeply question received medical wisdom. And incidentally, my grandmother actually gave birth to four children, The last child, my uncle, was born when my grandmother was, I think, 39 years old. And this was way before obstetric ultrasound was a thing. And he was the fourth healthy baby in their family. And at that time, this is in the 50s, she was considered to be just really old, you know, ancient. Um, So, yeah, there's that. So when, in 1989, my mother declined that ultrasound, her doctor shrugged and they moved on. And this, I think, is actually very, very important because my mother's doctor's ambivalence in the face of my mother's refusal of ultrasound in 1989 is in such stark contrast to the way that women now are received when they decline ultrasound, which is generally with just total incredulity and even outrage on the part of their doctors. Because now in 2017, no, <laughs> 2018. <laughs> yeah, it's 2018. Um, ultrasound is, it's ubiquitous. And it's not only seen as normal, but even as necessary for a healthy pregnancy. It's almost unheard of, I think, for a 39-year-old woman especially to decline even one of the many ultrasound and Doppler exposures that will be offered to her, let alone to refuse ultrasound altogether. And this is because ultrasound has come not only to be viewed as a necessary technology in terms of the supposed benefits that it provides, as elusive as those benefits may be, but more significantly, ultrasound fulfills symbolic, 
cultural and ideological purposes, which I'll be exploring throughout this episode and the next two. So as we know, most women, especially mothers over the age of 35, are sent in for multiple ultrasounds. And if a woman does in fact decide to forego an ultrasound scan, the obstetricians and nurses move quickly to instill in her fear and self-doubt and to convince her that she would not just be foolish but reckless to the point of negligence to refuse it. So why this drastic shift in attitudes towards ultrasound technology from its virtual non-existence to its ubiquity? Is it actually because so many babies were dying in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and prior to, from being deprived of ultrasound exposure? I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes, but before I do, let's fast forward, or rewind rather, to my own first pregnancy. So I was 19 years old, and it was 1999, and I knew absolutely nothing about anything. And actually, I had the same family doctor that I'd had since I was a child, who also happened to be my mother's doctor, the same doctor who had been present at my younger brother and sister's births, the same doctor who had shrugged when my mother said no to the ultrasound during her pregnancy with my brother. And this doctor was, by almost all accounts, one of the most progressive physicians in Vancouver at the time, Vancouver being my hometown, and a feminist, which, as we know, doesn't necessarily mean that much. Uh, And of course, one of the first things she did when I went to visit her the moment I found out I was pregnant, because that was what was considered normal and I was doing everything right, was to schedule me for an ultrasound. It wasn't a suggestion or even a question. It was a given. So, 12 years earlier, my mother at age 39 had declined the recommended ultrasound by that doctor. But here was the same doctor facing a very healthy 19-year-old woman. An ultrasound was almost reflexively scheduled. The first, and in many ways central, ritual in this game we play of Western baby-making and birthing. And I think this illustrates again how drastically a perspective can change even in the mind of one individual, thanks to social mores and shifting social and professional pressure. Now, I just want to take a little break uh, to mention a couple of things. So the first is my tiny little skincare company called Flora and Fauna Apothecary. We make one gorgeous skin elixir made from certified organic and fairly traded botanical oils sourced from the most reputable producers that we could find. And um, the ingredients include red raspberry oil, an amazing ultralight substance with a natural SPF factor of 20 to 25, and vitamin C and frankincense oil and macadamia nut oil and helichrysum, among many other fantastic ingredients. It's regenerative, anti-inflammatory, and can actually help to repair UV damage. And it smells amazing. And it is also quite literally the only thing that I ever use on my face. So I use it as a cleanser every morning and a moisturizer throughout the day before going to bed and as a sun protectant. So I quite truly, I have it on all the time. Uh, And I've been using it for years and years and I've been making it for quite a while now and people love it and actually I'm sold out right now but (laughs) you can order you can still order on my website um and the shipping will just be May 1st so it's a little bit of a wait but uh but it's pretty great stuff 
and uh, the site is www.florafauna.ca, F-L-O-R-A-F-A-U-N-A.ca. So there's that. And then I also want to implore you, um, if you appreciate the Bauhaus Wife podcast, then come on over and join my mailing list at bauhauswife.com and please, please, please take a couple of minutes to leave a review for the show on iTunes. So I share all of the information and the stories and the rambling that I do because I love women and babies and birth and happy families and Having positive reviews is actually such an immense help in terms of having this information reach others who might also benefit or be interested. So if you feel moved to leave a review, I would love that so much. Okay, thank you. Now back to the show. (laughs) So at about mm, 10 weeks pregnant, I went to an ultrasound clinic with a full bladder as I was instructed And I waited in the waiting room for ages, which would have been very uncomfortable as a young pregnant woman at the best of times, but the full bladder bit on top of it made the experience downright distressing. And finally, I was called into the treatment room and asked to take my pants off. Now, this was completely bizarre and unexpected. I thought they were going to stick something on top of my abdomen, but I complied because that's what good girls do. And I was told then that this would be a transvaginal ultrasound. And at first, I didn't even know what that meant, but I'm sure you can figure it out. And uh, I think it's self-evident that the process was totally humiliating. A dildo-shaped ultrasound transducer wand was inserted inside my vagina, and for maybe 10 to 15 minutes, I was probed by this thing. On so many levels, this was a massive violation. Just the procedure itself was humiliating, but the fact that, as is standard, I was given no information at all as to what the technician actually saw was unbearable to me. And Yes, I understood and understand that this is medical policy and that doctors have created all of these reasons to justify their refusal to share patient information with patients themselves at the time of a given procedure, but I still don't accept those justifications. I don't think they're legitimate or fair or acceptable. I actually have a real problem with the gatekeeping that goes on in medicine, and I I strongly believe that patients, subjects, individuals have a right to all the information gleaned about our bodies and our care unredacted and provided immediately upon discovery. I know that I, for one, am intelligent enough to receive and interpret any objective information pertaining to my body, and I strongly believe that maintaining medical hegemony is actually the primary purpose of withholding information from patients rather than any functional or you know, practical reason that makes any sense. So... Anyway, there's that. That's kind of an aside, so I'll move on. But uh, but yeah, apart from the paternalism of the whole system and the humiliation of that particular procedure, probably the most significant objection I had to being subjected to and in effect coerced into the transvaginal ultrasound is that at no point whatsoever was I informed, not by my own doctor or by the technicians at this ultrasound clinic, that ultrasound is not, in fact, benign, that it actually carries objective, concrete, and known deleterious effects to human tissue, and therefore risk. 
How is it possible to make an informed choice about a medical procedure if we are denied the information that would allow us to inform ourselves or if we are lied to about the possible ramifications of a procedure? The answer, of course, is that it is not possible to make an informed decision under those conditions. So anyway, I went home feeling depressed, debased, and sullied without really understanding why, because I hadn't yet developed the language with which to critique these systems. And of course, language is really the source of power and of our ability to discern anything, to establish healthy norms for ourselves and society. I mean, language is, it's everything, right? So anyway, a few days after the transvaginal ultrasound, I started to miscarry. And I've told the story of my miscarriage many times, but essentially it was incredibly painful. I was bleeding and I had no idea that any of this was normal. I had no idea that miscarriage constitutes a birth and everything that I was experiencing was really devastating. And it was also okay and physiological and in a way healthy or an expression of health. But I had no one around me who could really confirm that and no, no real support. So I went to the hospital, and there I was wheeled into the emergency room, and I was tortured and ridiculed through a DNC procedure. It was a horrendous experience, and in a way, I'm very thankful that I went through it because I literally walked out the doors of the hospital the next day, still woozy from the morphine, and I knew I would never go back there. And two weeks later, to my shock, I was pregnant again. And this was terrifying, but also liberating. There was no question or questioning. I would be giving birth at home. It was just a given after the experience I'd had at the hospital. And I also knew that I wouldn't be having anything to do with the allopathic system. I just sort of had this you know, awakening that there had to be a better way. There must be a better way. I was going to find a better way. Um, And that started with this decision that I wouldn't be engaging with the medical system anymore. And that same week, I went to my local health food store and I came across a copy of Spiritual Midwifery by Anna Mae Gaskin. I'm flipping through the wonderful black and white photographs in that book was totally transformative. There was something about those wild haired goddesses in the images that I recognized in myself. And the book really awoke this primal knowing in me. These were my sisters and birth, contrary to everything that I'd actually experienced, I saw in those pages as a sisterhood, as this sort of initiation. And I read Spiritual Midwifery cover to cover over and over again. And I noted that in the edition of the book that I had anyway, ultrasound was never mentioned. I then went out and found every other book every other piece of material available on pregnancy and birth that I could get my hands on. I read mainstream stuff and really out there stuff, and I filtered all these words about birth through my own growing knowledge, my discernment, my worldview, and my value system. And yeah, it was amazing. And you know, when I read, when I reread Spiritual Midwifery now, I recognize that so much of that text is not terribly useful and that it describes an approach to home birth that essentially involves transposing a medicalized approach to birth to a home setting, which is not something that I support or advocate for. But I'll always love the book and Ina Mae Gaskin herself for introducing me to the understanding that home birth is normal and accessible to every woman and doable and sacred.
And really, of everything I read, the stories and philosophies that most resonated with me were, were those that involved this sort of dual tension of confirming that, on one hand, pregnancy and birth are normal, spontaneous biological events, while simultaneously constituting this miraculous, transformative, liminal, and spiritual experience. On the other hand, it hit me like a revelation that reclaiming birth is a political act. It's an act of resistance. It's an act of civil disobedience, precisely on the grounds of this juxtaposition, or perhaps because of this juxtaposition. And, you know, the lengths that men have had to go in order to brainwash women into believing that we're victims of birth rather than the powerful life bringers that we are has been extreme. And, you know, please understand that, well, yes, I do see the current state of birth as a result of profound misogyny. It's not that I hold individual men accountable. I mean, I see patriarchy as a class hierarchy intertwined with capitalism. I'm speaking in very general terms. And certainly there are many women, women obstetricians, nurses, and midwives who are effectively doing the work of the patriarchy and admired in their own internalized misogyny. So, you know, don't, no, uh, no accusations of misandry. It's not a thing anyway. <laughs> That's not... Okay, anyway, I'm getting off topic here. But uh, yeah, so throughout my pregnancy, I really lived this blossoming understanding that birth is not a medical event, but the culmination of a totally self-propelled experience of creation common to all mammals. Well, maybe not totally self-propelled, but um, I don't know, given from within. You know, the experience is given from within. And I recognized birth as an event that could be and maybe even should be, the epitome of freedom. And that the flip side of this potential for liberation was that birth has been corrupted, thwarted, and really defiled because it is a moment of ultimate female power. It seemed to me that pregnancy and birth were maybe the grounds for the most potent expression of the personal being political. And I really started to question all of the standard obstetrical procedures around pregnancy and birth. I started to question how pregnant women are treated and seen or unseen, and I began to recognize birth's overall pathologization in our culture. And I started to need to break down the social and political significance of every single act and test and assessment done to pregnant women and babies in the system, and to question whether or not any of these actually have anything to do with creating the optimal conditions under which women and babies birth themselves. And, you know, that's not a tricky question. I mean, the answer is clearly no, it's the opposite. None of that, none of that stuff is necessary. And it's, well, it's, it's necessary, but not for creating optimal conditions of birth. Um, anyway, in particular, I questioned ultrasound. And that technology emerged to me as one of the procedures most emblematic of what I saw as the misplaced values of our culture the bifurcation of body and self, and a mechanistic approach to women's birthing bodies. And I started to really look at the medical system itself as a class hierarchy. I suppose, you know, from a Marxist perspective to some degree, and I started to see choice within the context of medicine as an impossibility precisely because of its hierarchical organization. The subordination of women especially, and women of color, and marginalized women to an even greater degree, of course, calls into question our ability to 
really make decisions within a framework in which those with power dictate the very rules of engagement and control the flow of information and from whence that information is gathered. So would you like your ultrasound on Tuesday or Thursday is not a choice, right? Are you sure you don't want an ultrasound? Don't you love your baby? It's not a choice. And when I got my hands on Robbie Davis Floyd's essay, Birth as an American Rite of Passage, and the rest of her work too, my mind was blown. Davis Floyd described in academic terms what I was feeling so profoundly on an intuitive level. The contemporary Western birth practices, which have been and sadly continue to be exported to every corner of the globe, represent a system predicated on an androcentric approach to the female body as a machine. And birth as a process by which children, who within the capitalist system are the desired outcome, the product, the object, the commodity, are extracted from women's bodies in service to the state. And this idea of sanitized, mechanized childbirth is sold to women as the easy way, the clean way, the modern way to give birth. And certainly efficiency as a business model underlies much of industrial obstetrics, but there's a deeper purpose to destroying the physiology of birth, of obliterating the delicate hormonal matrix of birth. There's a cultural function to essentially traumatizing the participants of birth, both mother and baby, and that is to initiate the child and the mother into patriarchy, preparing them to take their place within a technocratic, capitalistic culture of dependency and consumption. So in the midst of my new pregnancy and my continuing research and the development of my own philosophy of birth, I moved to the Sunshine Coast north of Vancouver, and there, as I was in my early stages of pregnancy, it was brought to my attention that regulated midwifery had just been instituted in British Columbia, and as such, I would be eligible to receive the care of a midwife without paying a cent. Midwifery was covered under BC's socialized medical care. Yay! So I called up the midwifery college and they assigned a midwife to me and I was very excited because midwifery was totally outside of the medical paradigm. I was going to get what I wanted. Well, not quite as I was to discover. And I've talked about this quite a, quite a bit before. I'm probably boring some of you, but, um, but if you're interested in hearing a lot more of what I have to say about regulated midwifery, I recommend that you check out the podcast interview I did with the wonderful Marin Green. Marin's the founder of Indie Birth. And it's episode number, oh, geez, I don't have that top of mind. But anyway, it's one of Marin Green's episodes of her podcast, Taking Back Birth. So I won't go heavily into the political stuff around regulated midwifery now or in this space, but you can go ahead and listen to Marin's podcast and uh, yeah, you might get some insight there. In a nutshell, though, I met with a regulated midwife for two prenatal sessions, and that was more than enough for me to recognize that I would not be able to function within the licensed midwifery realm. This incompatibility was very clear based on what this particular midwife said and the way that she behaved, essentially unable to support my choices or to uphold my authority. And one of the key pieces of evidence for this was the way that she immediately pushed ultrasound on me. And even though one of the first things I said to her was that I would not be having any ultrasounds, she repeatedly brought the subject up as though she had no recollection of my firm stance on the issue. It almost seemed to me that she had a stake in my receiving an ultrasound, 
And of course, that made me feel deeply uncomfortable and even a little suspicious. So what registered for me eventually, of course, is that she did have a stake in my receiving an ultrasound. As an agent of the state, as are all regulated midwives, she is beholden to the state as her employer, her governor, her authority. One cannot serve two masters. Regulated midwives must answer to their regulatory body, which is essentially the government. And because regulated midwives carry insurance and are often deeply in debt as a result of a very expensive academic medical education, they have to be very, very careful about how they practice so as not to break their code of conduct or violate their scope of practice. They are also often in conflict with obstetricians. Because midwives mean well and want to serve women, by the time they're actually out there in the world practicing their profession, most of them are well aware of the double bind that they have to navigate. They're also not ignorant of the position they occupy on that medical hierarchy, which is subordinate to that of obstetricians, but also in many ways in competition with obstetricians. So there are actually lots of overt and covert ways in which midwives are incentivized to strongly encourage, sadly, sometimes to the point of coercion, their patients to accept ultrasound. If something were to go wrong, for example, and a woman hasn't received an ultrasound, who do you think is going to take the fall? In this highly litigious and blame-prone society, covering yourself and protecting your liability is paramount, especially when there's so much at stake. And, you know, I really feel for the position that regulated midwives are in. It's a very, very difficult one. But notice how as I've been talking about these complexities of why ultrasound is so encouraged, the mother and the baby, they kind of fall off the deep end, right? They sort of recede into the background of this conversation. They're not even really part of the discussion anymore. It's not really about them. Ultrasound is a powerful tool for establishing a trail of evidence, for protecting doctors and midwives, and for reinforcing the notion that during pregnancy, the real authority is external. Real dominion lies with professionals and their machines. And this idea has been so instituted that it's entirely normal to hear pregnant women say that it wasn't until they had an ultrasound that they even really felt that their pregnancy was real, and that in a way, their pregnancies were made real by the ultrasound itself. Women also often say that they don't feel much of a connection to their babies until they see their shape on the ultrasound screen. Ultrasound has made really deeply feeling the inherent mystery of pregnancy and birth. Not just optional, not just redundant, but even outlandish. It is considered now remarkable and even bizarre not to have received digital proof of our procreation. Instead of this mystery of life unfolding, we have a reality that's physical, yes, but that's nonetheless most significantly experienced in this culture via a screen. And of course, this mimics, maybe tragically, our modern lives. Many of us really live out our interpersonal relationships on screen, our friendships on screen. Our sexuality is derived from the screen, sadly, often. And if you're interested to hear what I have to say about pornography, go to episode one of the Bauhaus Wife podcast. You'll 
hear all about it. (laughs) So this preoccupation with ultrasound is actually very much in keeping with the trajectory of contemporary life, right? But others too, I think, are pondering the logical conclusion of these trends. I don't think I'm alone in my conviction that pregnancy and childbirth are deeply spiritual states, for many women anyway. And I think there are very important implications to our increasing dependency on technology, especially when it serves to replace a spiritual or intuitive or even physiological knowing. Anyway, (laughs) so the regulated midwife whose services I had engaged on the Sunshine Coast of BC during my first pregnancy did manage to coerce, and I do mean coerce me, into receiving a Doppler scan. And as is so often the case, the really complicating factor in all of this is that she was very, very nice. She was a lovely person. And I sensed that she didn't feel entirely comfortable with her obligations as a regulated midwife. And the conflict that was emerging in terms of her responsibility to me versus her responsibility to her midwifery college was, it was a very difficult one. I had concerns about the Doppler because I understood at that point that it used a similar technology to the larger ultrasound machines, but I wasn't really clear on exactly how it worked. And of course, Dopplers do seem very benign. And I can remember the way she presented it. It's so small, so quick. Wouldn't you just like to have a little listen to your baby? And like so many women, that was really the draw for me. The idea that I could listen in to my baby and wouldn't you like to? And the niggling suggestion there is that most other mothers want to. Why don't you? And one can't help but hear that little voice. You know, is there something wrong with you that you don't possess the same desire to know your baby as other mothers do? Why are you so paranoid, Yolanda? Surely it can't be dangerous. Why don't you have the same level of curiosity? Maybe even the same leveling of, maybe even the same level of engagement as other women. So, I caved. (laughs) Now, I'm going to stop there for this episode because there's so much more that I want to cover and I don't want to try to squish all this material into into one super extra long episode. So, I'm going to leave it there, leave everyone hanging. Um, But over the next two episodes of the Bauhaus Wife podcast, you will hear so much more about this. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to uh, chat with you then.
And in the meantime, again, head to my website at www.bahousewife.com, B-A-U-H-A-U-S-W-I-F-E.com. And I also have lots of fun stuff at www.florafauna.ca, F-L-O-R-A-F-A-U-N-A.ca, and pottery stuff at yolandanorisclark.com. Um, am I missing anything? Probably I am. But anyway, that's okay. We'll talk to you later. Bye.